This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. All public offerings are made possible by the kind donations from people like you. Good morning. The, the theme of, of the, the practice period we're in the midst of here at City Centre is uh, the Bodhisattva way. And, uh, you know, in the Bodhisattva vow, there is this kind of refrain of, this is impossible and I vow to do it. And so that's what I'd like to talk about this morning. And then I have a particular way of picking up the impossible, um, which I'll get to in a few minutes. But what I'd like to do is start off with a few moments of sitting. There is a way in which um, the, the very nature of our conditioned existence is that we think and perceive with, within our habitual way of thinking and perceiving. And whatever comes along, we fold it into it. And, and then the chant we just did, and the, the, the request of Zazen is that something in us opens up and we allow things to just arise in a more immediate, and expressive fashion and not just be um, the next version of the world according to me. So we'll start by sitting uh, just for a few minutes. So if you could um, notice your seat, how you're sitting, let yourself um, be settled in your seat. If there's little discomforts, you can adjust. Let your body find an upright and balanced posture. Let your body have an openness, somewhat a conceptual guide, and then in another way, a physical guide. What is it to let your chest open across the front, across the back? What is it to let the face relax and be open? What is it to let the abdomen relax and open? And then let the breath be breathed into that openness.
and as much as possible, bringing careful attention to the details, the physical sensations of the breath. how it is when we inhale and how it is in the exhale. Where is, quite literally, where is it felt and experienced in the body? What's happening now? Is the attention drawing mind into awareness of the breath? Are there too many thoughts for that to happen? Or some combination?
often when I'm thinking about, uh, you know, what to talk about in a Dharma talk, I ask myself, well, what's alive for me at this period of time? What's, uh, what's attracting the energy of being? whether it's, you know, positive, some kind of anticipation of something pleasant happening, or negative, annoyance with something, either past or future. And here's what I come up with as an answer to that. Uh, the presidential debate that happened uh, recently and I was thinking, you know, when you take the Dharma seat, uh, it's the Dharma seat. You talk about the Dharma. You, you do not uh, express your own personal biases or preferences. Uh, you, you do not create an environment of picking and choosing. You know, this is right because I like it and this is wrong because I don't like it. Uh, so how to talk about the presidential debate uh, and all that's implicit in that, you know, this particular time in the United States and in some ways extending out into the world, the, uh, it, it, it seems like internationally, maybe globally, but at least internationally, we're having a debate around governance, you know, democracy or the autocracy of a strong single leader asserting or expressing their directions for everyone to follow. And then what is, what is the teaching of the theater of a presidential debate? You know, two individuals coming together, saying what they say, saying it the way they say it. You know? um, and then with what mind, with what heart do we listen? Oh, yeah, he always says those things and they're not true and it's terrible or whatever. Uh, and isn't there some version of that going on inside of each of us? Yeah. Maybe it's not about the politics of the country. Maybe it's about the issues in our own life. as we chew them over. You know? How someone spoke to us, how we're um, thinking and feeling about them. That kind of uh, interaction. Sometimes with another person, sometimes with ourselves. There is um, a koan 
that, that I find relevant to this. It, I was particularly uh, intrigued by the notion of relating to this in the context of a koan, because the word koan in, in its derivation in Chinese, it's one of the translations and may, maybe the most uh, persuasive one is public case. And certainly the presidential debate fits that. But then also the notion of controversy or, or chewing something over, you know, that, that process that we all do. You know? And in that way, it's, it's public because we all have an experience of it. You know? Ruminating in our own mind. What about that? What's going on there? So the Cohen I was thinking of is case 15 in the Blue Cliff Records. And a monk asked young men, and he said, the monk said, if it's not just what's being thought of right now, and it's not how the world is being perceived right now. What is it? If it's not the ideas and opinions that I have, and it's not how I'm perceiving others to be, um, then what is reality? What is going on? And young men said, an upside down statement. And then to be, to expand that or expound on that with a bit of linear logic, is he talking about the response to the monk's question. If it's not that, or it's not that, well then it's an upside down statement. Because huh? that's all there is, you know? That's what reality is. Reality is implicitly and irrevocably subjective. That's what you got. You've got the way your mind works and the way you perceive the world and the way you perceive others. And to ask for something other than that is upside down. And then the other way we could hear the response is uh, that when you think that way, it's not this and it's not that. It's like you're turning the world upside down because usually that's exactly what we're taking for granted as reality. You know? What I think and how I perceive is reality. And by questioning it, you're turning it upside down. And I would suggest to you, it's a little bit like sitting zazen. When we sit zazen, 
we don't simply ruminate or we intend not to ruminate inside our own thoughts and our own issues. Uh, we, we don't simply uh, create a perception of reality and cling to it. We make it, we turn it upside down. So the, there's those two notions. And, and often in, in a con, there is um, kind of, and it, it raises up different perspectives or it invites different perspectives. And so the con I'd like to discuss is to take young men's con and apply it to the presidential debate. And, you know, really what I'm saying is applying it to how we're all thinking and feeling about this time approaching the elections. Do you approach it with an utter apathy? Which, as far as I could tell, on average, about 40% of the population do. They're all charlatans. They all say things that are never gonna happen. So why even bother to vote? Or do you approach it with a fervor? This is the virtuous way. This is the right way. And this person represents it. Or this person, is as close to that as I'm going to have the option to vote for right now. So that's the person I'll vote for. Or do you think um, this person is wickedly inappropriate, causing harm? And voting against them is the virtuous thing to do. And then within the practice of the con, within the request of the con, can you Acknowledge, ah, this is how I think about it. This is what I, conclusions I have. And this is even the feelings I have about it. I noticed in myself, as I was listening to, I listened to it on the radio. And as I listened, And, and one person would speak, and they speak very well. And, and apparently, you know, when they're fact-checked, sticking to the facts is not their strong suit. They, they're more uh, liberal with their sensibilities. You know? 
as I was listening, I was thinking, well, why not say I'm wonderful and everything I did was wonderful. So of course you should vote for me. Why not? I mean, does it have to be true? I mean, isn't truth perceptive, a, a, a subjective perception? Uh, and of course, the answer is no, it's not subjective perception. <laughs> there's, there's details, uh, there's a lot at stake. But I enjoyed the fluidity of the demeanor and, and somewhat uh, was struck by the recklessness of the presentation. You know? In Ireland, we have a joke where we say, never let a few details stand in the way of a good story. You know? <laughs> Why bother to say, well, you know, I did my best. Maybe it wasn't so great, uh, but that's what I did. When you could say, I did it perfectly, you know? I did it the best ever, you know? There's been no president's ever done it as well as I did. Uh, and can each of us see how we can be susceptible to that, you know? My way of thinking, my way of perceiving is the way, you know? There's other ways, but really, mine's the best. Yeah? Or do we fall on the other side where we uh, deeply mistrust our way? My way of thinking is flawed. My perceptions are just an expression of my foolishness. You know? I should be uh, finding someone who could tell me the right way. There, there's an image in Zen, you know, which is called the razor's edge. You know? Don't get stuck in self-grandizement and don't get stuck in tearing yourself down. So I would say to you, and I think you all know who I'm talking about when I'm saying the person who seemed to be uh, praising and debatably embellishing their own uh, accomplishments. And then the other person trying to both respond to that and then uphold uh, another, the, their version of what's virtuous. And as I listened, I find myself thinking, oh, right now you should be calling him on that terrible thing he said two weeks ago. Huh? 
that would have been the better retort than just to say, you know, that's not so great. You know, it's absolutely terrible. Say this. <laughs> that's the sort of expression that was arising in my mind. Is being aware of what arises for us, is that enough? Are we asked through Zen practice to thoroughly negate it? As the monk said to young men, if it's not the present thinking and it's not the present perception, what is it? Is young men saying, don't negate your experience. Remember, Master Ma said, this very mind is Buddha. Can those admonitions, can they... Um, draw us into a, a combination. In the Prajnaparamita, it says, it's neither real nor unreal. No? The perception you're having is not the absolute truth, nor is it utter nonsense. It's the perception you're having. It's the experience of your being being manifest in this moment. The image that came up for me was like putting your hand in the ocean. And if we say, I'm experiencing the whole ocean, we're both incorrect and correct, you are touching the ocean. You know? You're, this is the whole ocean. And at the same time, you, you're touching what the surface area of your fingers are touching. It's a particular subjective momentary event. So it's both. It's both the whole ocean and not the whole ocean. It's both the subjective and limited in that way and not the full experience of being. And, and the, the, this teaching of Prajnaparamita offers us a guidance as to, well, how do I take up the workings of my own psychology, my own thoughts and feelings, my own habits of relating to others? How do I take them up and practice with them in a way that 
cultivates and expresses liberation in a way that facilitates waking up. And then the kind of a presidential debate, the kind of having some influence on how United States is run. And by extension, the influence of United States in the global politic. This is the Bodhisattva Bar. It's quite particular. This is impossible. I vow to engage it. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to practice with them. This world is vast. I don't know where, 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 what number we're at now, whether we've reached 8 billion or not. But, but there's so much happening. The influence of the United States is powerful. And you have a single vote. That's what you have. That's what we have each moment. We have the influence of our subjective being. Maybe it is true. We touch the ocean and really we touch the surface area of our hand, but it's still part of the ocean. And, and this proposition of the Bodhisattva vow, be it so, this is impossible, be, or to put it in maybe, maybe a more direct way to put it, the assertion of my intention will not independently change the whole world but it will add some influence to it. And this world is filled with human beings also manifesting their thoughts and feelings and actions and relatedness. All the other people who will vote or not vote asserting their influence. You know, the ancient Greeks, when they were um, coming up with the process of governance of, of democracy, um, they had qualifications that you had to have to earn a vote, to be earn the right to vote. And when the founding fathers of the United States were coming up with the constitution, similarly, they discussed, you know, 
Should everyone get to vote? Should certain people get to vote? Certain people not get to vote? Where I grew up in Northern Ireland, when I was young, only property owners could vote. It wasn't an independent right you just had by being a citizen. I didn't say that to say one of those is right and one of those is wrong, but more to say the consideration of how we govern ourselves. We've been working with literally for thousands of years. This con has been in our collective psyche a long time. It, and the heritage of the Zen way is that this is immense. And yet the action of this moment matters. To be in this moment and to act accordingly, whatever that might be, is the Buddha way. This is young uh, Master Ma saying, this very mind is Buddha. Where will we wake up? We will wake up in the moment that's occurring. It's not an abstraction. No. So young man is saying to the monk, you know, we can't negate that and negate that and still think there's an existence that we can wake up in. That's an upside down statement. And then the other version, if you think that somehow the world will comply with your actions, your preference, your opinion, that that's the whole story. That's an upside down statement too. So we have a con. What is appropriate response? And another image in Zen is, uh, it, it's the image of maybe a little militaristic, uh, cutting with a sword, you know? And the, the, the language of the image says, it both cuts through, it takes life and it gives life. In, in saying, well, your subjective perspective is one of eight billion. No? Your vote will be one of 
maybe 150 million. I think that's approximately where the number of people who are inclined to vote historically. So not convincing yourself that there's some momentous authority in your decision. And then the other side, each one of those 150 million is just a vote, but collectively they are the governance of the country. Sentient beings are numberless. I've vowed to practice with them. That this singularity accompanied by the very experience of collective being, you know, this is uh, the nature of our existence. If there wasn't interbeing, why would others delight us, frustrate us, you know, enchant us, fill us with disgust? If there wasn't interbeing, uh, how could we listen to a, a presidential debate with something other than utter neutrality. But hopefully we do, because there is interbeing. And the, and the interbeing is what supports and enlivens the singular being. It's our sense of the collective that in our participation in it that creates the, the authority, it creates the uh, efficacy of governance. And, and we experiencing it, we experience it in sitting together. We, we sit together and, and usually we do that physically in the same physical locality. And now we're experimenting with, what is it to sit together over the internet? We're experiencing how that, uh, how that influences us. When I sit in the morning, I scan the computer screen, you know, just to kind of have a physical experience of others sitting with me. You know? And then I sit, you know. This is our human nature, I think. 
that others matter, that connectedness matters, that interbeing matters. And I, I would say that the interbeing is more relevant to our collective well-being than having hardened opinions as to who is virtuous and who is not. I once heard the Dalai Lama talking about um, his personal relationship as, as the Dalai Lama, his relationship with the Chinese government and, and how he, he said he always kept an attitude of willingness to negotiate. And, uh, and he said he's rebuked by uh, people in Tibet, Tibetans, that he's being, he's not being um, assertive enough, that he's not being adamant enough. That uh, when he says, my good friends, my enemies, the Chinese, I, it's too conciliatory. So another part of the con, you know, that when some people are governing in a way that we profoundly disagree with, you know, what is our social responsibility? Is it simply voting? Is it going out in the streets and protesting? Is it going out in the streets and smashing windows and doing other acts like that? Interestingly, the heritage of Zen is to uh, is to appreciate the immensity of the con. to appreciate the immensity of the responsibility of living your life appropriately. And, and I would suggest to you, you know, if you think about it, how could there be an easy right answer? I would suggest to you that someone sitting in the Dharma seat that I'm doing right now, wouldn't it be utterly foolish if I tried to say to you, you should do this, you should think like this, you should have the same biases and attitudes that I do. Certainly it seems to me that would be utterly foolish. And yet for me, it seems like there is a wisdom, an appropriate response 
in reminding ourselves This is our planet. We are part of the planet, part of the human existence, part of the tradition of democracy. And with that comes the responsibility of the Bodhisattva vow. And maybe one last thought I would leave you. Uh, certainly it's one that has occurred to me in my life is that not to be intimidated or resentful for the immensities of the challenges in front of you, but in a way to be grateful that they're asking you to go as deep as you can in finding your answer, you know, to be as thoughtful as you can. In a way, it's easy to have a bias and, and, and just sort of let that be what you express. I hate all of them. Someone was talking to me recently and they were saying, oh, and then when I go home, my family are staunch Republicans. And they weren't, they, they, they were more liberal minded. And, uh, and so that's an interesting challenge. Right? I would suggest you, painful or difficult as that might be, doesn't it offer a request to not simply be defined by your bias, defined uh, a deeper, more thoughtful response? This is the nature of calling. In, in, in a way, Every con is impossibly deep. Every con is there challenging us to keep discovering. It's the impossibility that keeps bringing it back to beginner's mind. During the presidential debate, I marveled at the glibness of one person. And at the same time, I, uh, I find it hard not to also, you know, just dismiss the person because I don't agree with, anyway, I don't agree with their politics. It's almost hard to listen to anything factual that they said.
So in a way, part of me thinks, well, well, actually, I must be honest, part of me thinks that you'll go out and vote. Because <laughs> I, I think uh, we have a shared responsibility. Yeah. And to exercise it uh, creates it strengthens our interbeing. In, in that when we face formidable challenges, um, they deepen us. They make us more thoughtful people. They, they, they make us less inclined to just settle for some not very uh, insightful attitude or response. know, whether we're talking about national politics or whether we're talking about our own relationships or even how we engage the different parts of ourselves. From the Zen perspective, each and all of these is the con. And each of all of these is an opportunity to discover, to realize, to actualize the way of the Bodhisattva. This is impossible. I vowed to do it. Thank you. <laughs>